you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. A glimmer of hope in SoCal's fight against COVID-19 as L.A. County goes one day without a reported death from the virus. We'll ask an expert what that means for reopening. And if you're kind of nervous about returning to normal life, you're not alone. We'll shine a light on quarantine-induced social anxiety. It's all ahead. Join me. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. Thank you so much for being with us today. Coming up. A recall of Governor Newsom would not only be a setback in resolving the housing crisis, it would be bad for all Californians. So says Congresswoman Barbara Lee. They're tackling the topic du jour at the California Democratic Convention this weekend. I will have the details in just a few minutes. You're going to want to stick around for that. But first, the story that keeps on giving, though I wish it wouldn't. That's, of course, California's battle with the coronavirus. For the first time in a long time, no COVID-19 deaths were reported in the daily public health update. That was on Sunday. Now, It could just be a reporting lag from the weekend, but still feels good to see that zero there. Like we're officially turning the corner on this pandemic, right? But yeah, there's always a but. Demand for vaccinations is dwindling. So where does that leave us? Let's get some answers from Dr. Shruti Gohill, Associate Medical Director of Epidemiology and Infection Prevention at the University of California, Irvine. Doctor, it is always good to talk with you. Oh, great to be here. Now, I just gave a little snapshot of Los Angeles County there. You are in Orange County. How do things look down there in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths? Yeah, we're very much uh, reflecting the L.A. trends here. And um, it looks like we also had a zero death report over the weekend. Of course, all caveats attached to that. Um, I will say uh, rates are are low and uh, stable. In general, Doctor, it seems that California continues to beat this thing despite cases climbing in other states and states that are close to us, too, like Oregon and Washington. Why do you think California has been able to avoid the surge that other states have seen? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because, you know, while we say that we have zero um, deaths and our, our rates are stable, you know, all of the gains that we've had in in these last several months after that enormous wave we saw in January with our homegrown California strain, um, you know, all of that can get taken, can slide right back. And, and I think what's happening in Oregon and Washington is, is a bit of a um, harbinger. And of course, what's happening globally with some of these different variants um, popping up, for example, in India. So all of these sort of um, potential variants um, have their place. Now, Washington and Oregon remains to be seen whether or not it's a specifically, um, you know, sort of a, a new variant with 
within those groups, of mm. course. So we have one, that's one possibility. The other, actually, I have to say, we have been really conservative with our um, uh, reopening strategies here in uh, California. I know that Oregon and, and Washington have as well, but they hadn't had to deal with these higher rates uh, the way that we have. And so the population, sometimes what we find is culturally people lag behind in their changes in their behaviors. Um, for example, with masking and social distancing and house, uh, distancing, how seriously we should take it. And people have been reading and, and hearing about this for about a year now. People are tired. And certainly in places where you've had less firsthand experience with COVID, um, you know, severe surges, uh, then you could you could roll back pretty easily. So it's a nice message to all of us here sitting here in uh, Southern California. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Well, that is important to keep in mind. And as with so many things in this pandemic, it is really the combination of factors that can either lead to a successful outcome or a uh, less than optimal outcome, I'll say. And you mentioned the surge in Southern California. So I actually want to ask you a little bit about that because I know cases are very much down here, so much so that we might enter into a new tier soon. How much of the success that we've seen can we attribute to the vaccinations or how much of that is just the fact that a lot of people already got the actual virus? Oh, yeah. You know, I think that it's a, as you you nicely put it, multifactorial. As with everything in medicine, it's multifactorial. And I think it is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I think it's a combination of the fact that our um, I, I, I actually do think that uh, our communities really did adhere to principles, uh, our businesses adhered to principles. And so we, we changed practice behaviorally at a community level combined with vaccine efforts. Now we have, we're looking at what 50%, almost you know, 47%-ish um, people in Southern California who have been um, who have at least received one dose of the vaccine and a third of our population that's received two, so fully vaccinated. So as time marches on, that number increases. Um, again, we shouldn't count our chickens before they hatch. Herd immunity goes to, you know, 70% to now 80% is what's been estimated to achieve this sort of concept of a threshold herd immunity um, you mentioned, doctor, at least 47 uh, percent, uh, at least here in Lo- Los Angeles County, 47 percent of people have received at least one shot. What's the picture like in Orange County? Yeah, that, very similar. It's it's um, oh, actually about 46 percent, 47 percent. Yeah. And, and about a third that have been um, fully vaccinated. And yet, there's always a but in these coronavirus conversations, <laughs> there's always a doctor. But. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, well, I'm I like... Think it's worthwhile. <laughs> Go on, please. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, I'll say the, 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 butt, the butt's coming. The, you know, um, well, where are the vaccines being distributed and, and how best can we make sure that this thing that is, has gone down and it's, we're in this nice, nice, sweet spot right now. Um, but, it, you know, amongst, for example, the highest burden communities, let's take the Latino population in Orange County, um, you know, 35% or so of the population uh, here, represented by Latinos um, in Orange County, and yet 8% under the age of 65 have been vaccinated. So that's quite a gap if you look at the overall, you know, one third of, of our county residents being um, vaccinated. So we still have more to do to get the vaccine out there in the places that are the hottest spots. Well, yeah, we seem like we've hit a wall when it comes to demand. And even here in L.A., we've seen people not going back for their second dose. They're not signing up for their first ones as much as before. What are you hearing from public health officials in Orange County about this? You know, I think that um, well, I'm not sure I can I can speak for uh, the county per sure. se, but um, yes, what I'm hearing from the patient base and um, in general, from what I'm understanding from uh, the public health um, effort, it's you know we're now in this place where we are we really are swimming in vaccine. We have enough availability now. The issue, just like with politics, everything is local, local, local. You know, I think that getting out to some of these communities that need um, vaccination the very most that is the key effort. You the online, we may have saturated in some ways those who are most internet savvy, those who are able to just, you know, go ahead and secure their appointments or who are regressive, perhaps, and getting the securing those appointments. Now we've got to go to our people. Um, And that's the way we have to handle flu and measles and all the rest of it. You you show up to your doctor and boom, you can get your vaccine. You've got to make it really convenient for a lot of people to get through this hurdle. 
We're talking right now with Dr. Shruti Gohill. She's Associate Medical Director of Epidemiology and Infection Prevention at the University of California, Irvine. And you mentioned those hard-to-reach people. So let me ask, how should public health officials think differently about getting in front of people with vaccines? Maybe pop-up clinics, uh, setting up shop at a mall or a place where people might just tend to frequent? Yeah, I think that's, those are all really great ideas. And I think that the public health community really has been working with um, whatever resources they do have to to try to get out there, um, mobile clinics included. Um, and then, you know, we can't underestimate how much, you know, people trust the doctors, the communities in which they live. And so getting out to the local clinics, I think, really makes a difference to dispel some of those myths, whatever myths may be present, um, and then being able to get that vaccine. Um, so I think that, you know, every every drugstore, you know, every clinic that you can get to and saturate with these um, vaccines would be the wisest choice. You know, doctor, a couple months back, I actually had the misfortune of contracting COVID-19. And one of the first things that you had to do is report it uh, to the county. And the county, as kind of a thank you for being upfront and saying that you have COVID, gives you a, a gift card. It's a digital gift card. And it kind of incentivizes, I imagine, it incentivizes people to report their symptoms and their cases. And I see in West Virginia, to try to get people to get shots, they kind of did something similar not that long ago. They're offering savings bonds. I'm wondering, does this kind of thing work when you offer people stuff in exchange for taking care of themselves? You know, I think that the the idea is uh, how can we lower the barrier Sometimes it's just convenience. Sometimes it's just, I just need a little extra push or something like that. And heck, you know, if it takes um, whatever percent of the population that would respond to this um, uh, type of uh, uh, incentive, I I think that's absolutely money wisely spent. Um, Does it work? Uh, I think it. I think it does for some segment of the population. If you were to, that's that's. I think it's marketing 101. Um, we we have giveaways and raffles and all those kinds of things for many other non-health related items, and those seem to work really well. I don't see why this wouldn't either. A headline in the New York Times today, Doctor reads: Reaching herd immunity is unlikely in the U.S. I mean, that hurt my heart. I gotta say, but. Before we explain why experts think that, could you explain the whole concept of this herd immunity and why everyone's so fixated on it when it comes to the coronavirus? Yeah, well, we're, you know, for herd immunity is an old concept that we definitely um, think about for every communicable disease, including measles and influenza. Every year we're, we're thinking about it. And so COVID comes along and, of course, we have um, prior information suggesting that you know, if we reach this idea of 70% of the population immune to um, coronavirus, that we could lower the prevalence and the transmission pathway sufficient enough to, to let this uh, virus die out. And um, as the variants have come across the global scene, what we have seen is that now we understand that um, maybe that immunity, uh, herd immunity that we need to achieve, it, maybe it's more close to 80% because um, this thing has been going on and propagating so much that it's, allowed, it's been allowed to mutate to this level of higher transmissibility. And so as, as that happens, the higher and higher we need to achieve for our herd immunity. So the strongest message I would have is this idea of herd immunity, while the New York Times um, is, is actually stating something that many of us have thought about, if, you know, it's a timeline, if by June, we didn't see a massive increase in uh, the population being vaccinated enough, 70 to 80 percent, um, that, that we would be at risk for this being a, a long-standing virus um, in our communities. We knew that that was uh, you know, a possibility. In fact, we have been planning for that possibility, and it becomes increasingly um, clear that that might well be. H1N1, I'll remind our, our uh, listeners that H1N1, um, once that came on the scene, 2009, it was the primary influenza virus circulating uh, for the following five years. So um, we we anticipate that um, because we may not reach herd immunity mm. uh, in time, the low-level circulation will probably result in something similar for COVID. I'm really curious, doctor, just taking a step back and looking at, you know, this virus and the pandemic as a whole, there's so many you know, we see them now, missed opportunities at the beginning of the pandemic where we might have prevented it from spreading as much as it did. But from your perspective, is it kind of a, you know, 
hope for the best, but prepare for the worst sort of situation because you you kind of see the different ways that it can go from the very beginning. I mean, you just kind of have to watch it play out. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we have to try our best. It's like getting up to bat and you, you know, are you going to try your best? Yeah, you're going to try your best, right? Um, and and then you go for plan B if, if that's not going to be um, achievable. Do you detach yourself? This is getting deep, but I'm really curious. Do you detach yourself <laughs> from the results emotionally so you don't end up frustrated that maybe we blow past uh, a level yeah. where it could be contained? Yeah, you know, I think so. I, it's it's a hard um, it's it's hard for our communities, you know, to take this all in. But but when we are thinking about all of this, we know about contingency plans, and maybe maybe other, you know, it's our sole job to think about our publics and think about our patients in the hospital, for example. And so we're thinking down to plan A, B, C, D, right? What all types of contingencies. So you give this sort of equal uh, weight in your mind, and you hope that, gee, you don't have to go down too far down the rung. And so, um, but here are some real good silver linings here that um, you know that people. People should take heed and people may think and get fatalistic about, okay, well, we're not going to get herd immunity anyway. Why should I go and get my vaccine? And, uh, well, you know, this, this vaccine, first, it's one of the best vaccines that have come onto the scene. Um, and so uh, while it, you know, while we may not achieve herd immunity, their risk of hospitalization or severe illness like death um, uh, would be cut enormously that is worth a whole heck of a lot just like influenza we know that we cut deaths from influenza every year and so covid is no different and so um we should we should really think about it in terms of um eventually if we want to defeat this thing it may be, reach a low level circulation fine um every year you might have to get a booster fine um but we'll let's get to the place where um we can eventually see it peter out to a influenza-like level Dr. Shruti Gohill, thank you for leaving us with the silver lining on that one. She's Associate Medical Director of Epidemiology and Infection Prevention at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you so much for making the time. Of course. Thank you. Coming up, California Democrats lined up behind Governor Gavin Newsom this weekend at the state party convention. We'll tell you how it all went down just ahead. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. You are back with Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and on the KPCC app. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Is it just me or does this show just have the best music? So good. The California Democratic Party held its convention over the weekend, virtually, of course. And keeping Governor Gavin Newsom in the seat was top of their agenda. Cap Radio Politics reporter Nicole Nixon logged in for much of the proceedings. Still strange to say that. Logged in for much of the proceedings and joins us now for a recap. Nicole, welcome. Hi, Austin. Good to be with you. Thank you for logging in this weekend and thank you for <laughs> logging in today as well. Uh, Nicole, the effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom has gathered enough signatures to get on the ballot just days before the convention. And here's a clip of Congresswoman Barbara Lee. A recall of Governor Newsom would not only be a setback in resolving the housing crisis, it would be bad for all Californians. That is just a taster. So, Nicole, what was the general messaging about fighting the recall and which other party leaders stepped up in Newsom's defense? 
I think that that was a pretty good uh, sum up of the message of the weekend. Um, we heard from party leaders across the state, across the sort of democratic political spectrum, um, coming out against this recall and sort of uniting behind Newsom. Um, Barbara Lee, of course, is more progressive. You know, she has uh, support from progressive uh, Californian Democrats. Uh, Newsom also got support from, uh, you know, the the party chairman, Rusty Hicks, uh, vice president, Kamala Harris. Um, and that was really, I think, the the main topic on Saturday, which is when most of these elected officials were giving their speeches. This digital convention has been planned for a long time, but it really came at the perfect time for Governor Newsom, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, w- it was sort of a good way to rally up support and rally up the, the base, uh, you know, before he begins his campaign in earnest. Um, now that it's qualified for the ballot or not totally qualified yet, but it has enough signatures to go forward. I think um, we'll get the official word later in June about if it's like officially, officially official. Officially official. We'll keep watching <laughs> for that one. Well, here's Governor Newsom himself uh, addressing the recall directly in his convention address. National Republicans and extreme right wingers, they're not sitting back. They're throwing everything they can at their recall power grab, all in hopes of rolling back all of the important progress we have made together. And we can't let them win. Definitely trying to package it for the people and telling them what he thinks it is. So walk us through his messaging to the state party. What did he say? Yeah, he, you know, spent a lot of his, these are short speeches at this virtual convention, but he played a three minute video just reminiscing about the last year. He talked a lot about how uh, the federal administration, the Trump White House did not help California at all in dealing with the pandemic in the early days. Um, And then he skipped right to the past few weeks and months here, which is uh, vaccinations going up, the plan to reopen the economy fully in mid-June, and then pivoting from there to the recall and um, sort of framing it as as a way there for Republicans to, like you said, roll back all of this progress, um, not just on the pandemic, but also on his uh, and Democrats' liberal agenda for the state. Well, you know, it just kept coming. Vice President Kamala Harris also mentioned Newsom in her remarks. Here's her. He really does put his heart into his work on behalf of the people of California. And President Joe Biden and I support him 100%. I'm wondering, Nicole, did you get a sense this weekend of just how concerned Democrats actually are about this recall? I mean, how much of the talk was on that subject as opposed to other issues? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I haven't seen a lot of people actually you know, genuinely worried that he won't survive it. I mean, his approval ratings are good right now. He, he seems to have the support to survive it. I think the big worry from elected officials and party leaders, at least, is that another big name Democrat jumps in. That's what they do not want. That's something that happened in 2003, and it could siphon support mm-hmm. away from Newsom and into, you know, kind of split the Democratic vote that way. Just looking, though, between 2003 and now, it looks, at least from a polling perspective, like Governor Gavin Newsom is considerably more popular than Gary oh, Davis, absolutely. who was and, recalled. And, yeah, and Democrats uh, also have a much larger base. They're a lot more politically powerful now than they were 18 years ago. Well, we heard from Kamala Harris, who's, you know, who's pretty big, but at least one important Democrat opted not to speak directly to the recall efforts at the convention. Who was that? Yeah, I noticed that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi did not mention the recall at all. She did praise Newsom's handling of the pandemic, but she spent most of her time praising uh, President Biden's agenda, talking about the bills that the House has passed so far. Um, Another trend I noticed is that recent Newsom appointments didn't mention the recall either. So Attorney General uh, Rob Bonta, new Secretary of State Shirley Weber, Senator Alex Padilla, um, I would just guess that's probably they didn't mention the recall so that they wouldn't be accused of sort of using their new seats to promote the governor who appointed them so recently. And yet I'm still pretty curious as to why Pelosi didn't give her, you know, her buddy, Gavin Newsom, <laughs> any props at all. I mean, she gave him some props on covering the pandemic. Yeah, but maybe, props. maybe she's not too worried about the recall. You know, Kamala Harris also didn't directly mention the recall. But as you heard, she made a general statement of support for Newsom. 
We are recapping the California Democratic Party convention with Cap Radio's political reporter, Nicole Nixon. Nicole, there has been a fair amount of criticism of the current leadership. And much like the National Democratic Party, there are divides. So in one speech from Jenny Bach, who ran for vice chair, it really stood out to you. Can you tell us about her race against state controller Betty Lee and what Bach shared about her experience in the party? Yeah, Jenny Bach, um, she gave this interesting and, and telling speech where she called out toxicity and hostility in the party. Um, Jenny served in party leadership. She Her term ended, though, she ran for vice chair. She lost. Um, and in a speech to delegates, she said that the party isn't doing enough to elevate younger voices um, or fostering the next AOC, you know, progressive political superstar, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she said that the way the party is structured, the power structure puts too much influence and power in the hands of one person, sort of as a um, nudge, sort of call out to party chairman Rusty Hicks, who many Democrats, progressives think has been much too moderate in leading the the California Democrats. Now, Nicole, earlier I said state controller Betty Lee. It is Betty Yee. I know that. Please, no angry <laughs> tweets. I know it. Uh, Nicole, before we let you go, looking ahead, outside of the Newsom recall, what are some of the other goals that the Democrats outlined for 2022 and beyond? Yeah, the main one, um, these are, these events are great fundraising opportunity for candidates and for the party, but several speakers, including Nancy Pelosi, mentioned that they want to protect more vulnerable House members. Um, the names that were thrown out there, Josh Harder, Mike Levin, mm -hmm. Katie Porter, they're all up in 2022 and GOP targets. So I can think we can expect to see a lot of money going into those races. That's Cap Radio's political reporter, Nicole Nixon. Nicole, I've always heard your reports and I've been a fan. So it's so great to actually talk oh, to you. Thanks thank for being you with so us. so much. Yeah, happy to do it. We'll talk to you real soon. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be Moving on, Asian-American activists and academics who mobilize against anti-Asian hate say that academic research will play an important role in bringing about change. One big target? Breaking down the model minority myth with research that shows the traits of individual Asian-American communities. KPCC's Adolfo Guzman-Lopez reports. One such community is the nearly 400,000 Chinese international students enrolled in colleges and universities in this country. UCLA sociology undergraduate Knox Yang is one of them. Anti-Chinese rhetoric during the pandemic moved her to take action. My community, our community, has been misrepresented in the mainstream Western society. Why don't we just tell our story, like represent ourselves, give ourselves a voice. Yang's a filmmaker, so she put out a call for videos among her network of Chinese international students. What's been your experience during the pandemic, she asked. She received dozens of submissions from around the country and around the world. Like this college student in England who described how high school students coughed at her while she wore a mask. Yang wants people to understand that the Chinese are not monolithic. For starters... Even within China, there are different, there's a lot of diversity, different cultures and a lot of different dynamics. And when it comes to Chinese international students, it's also a very diverse community. Yang's project is one example of a growing movement in academia to take on anti-Asian hate. Yang's work caught the attention of two graduate students at UCLA who've begun their own research project. They're looking at how East Asian international students in the UC system have coped with xenophobia and sexual violence during the pandemic. It's called Double Jeopardy. They've asked Yang to join their project. Yoon Hee Park is co-leading the research. She studies immigrant health and the prevention of violence against women. I think now people see Asian-American issue as racial and social justice issue. I think previously it, it was not really, not as strong as right now. 
a pivotal moment for Park, who was born and raised in South Korea, was the killing of six women of Asian descent in Atlanta in March. I think that was a really like triggering point for everyone to come out and like we need we need to do something about this. There are plenty of examples of collaboration between social justice movements and academic researchers. One of the most notable is the case of Fred Korematsu, a Japanese-American who challenged his arrest in 1942 when he refused to be taken to an internment camp as ordered by President Franklin Roosevelt. The U.S. Supreme Court sided with Roosevelt. Lawyer Donald Tamaki was on the legal team that represented Korematsu four decades later. We reopened that case in the 1980s when researchers found secret wartime uh, intelligence reports from the Army, the Navy, the Federal Communications Commission, and the FBI. That said Japanese Americans did not present a threat to the war effort. Tamaki says that there hasn't been a time in U.S. history like now when so much attention is on Asian Americans. That's largely due to the work of Asian American and ethnic studies scholars over the last 50 years. I don't think professors necessarily view themselves as change agents. But in fact, in reality, I think they are, especially when it has to do with civil rights. He says that's one of the reasons that historical injustices, like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, are becoming more well known. Despite that work, Tamaki and others say there are big gaps in the research. The country's many Asian-American communities are often stereotyped as a so-called model minority that's seen as having few struggles. These communities do struggle, says UC Berkeley professor Katharia Um. She wants to see more research that reveals, for example, the socioeconomic situation of Cambodian Americans. Anything from access to education, to access to quality care, to um, you know affordable housing. The point, Um says, is not research for research's sake. It's to use the current attention on Asian Americans to point out where they're falling through the social safety net and highlight the ways in which these communities are resilient. Covering higher education, I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez. I think I recognize that as the smooth tones of Sam Cooke live at the Copa. Some breaking news from AP here. Bill and Melinda Gates say they are divorcing, but they will still work together at their foundation, which also happens to be the world's largest charitable foundation. Just coming across from AP there. Well, L.A. County is on the verge of entering into the yellow reopening tier. And a lot of good stuff comes with that. Indoor bars, for one, and increased capacity for a variety of outdoor spaces like Dodger Stadium. But that glimmer of normalcy is actually causing a lot of people's social anxieties to flare up. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. You're going to want to stick around. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Los Angeles County may be days away from entering the state's yellow tier, which means, huzzah, more reopenings. And as more people get vaccinated, socializing is becoming a thing again. After over a year of stay-at-home orders and social distancing, this is a relief for many. But for a lot of people, the reopening also means the return of social anxiety. And after a year, the pressure feels even higher. 
Do you feel seen right now? I know I do. Let's get some perspective from Dr. Jenny Tates, clinical psychologist and assistant professor at UCLA. She wrote a guide for managing social anxiety during COVID for the New York Times. Dr. Tates, welcome to the show. So nice to talk to you, Austin. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so great to have you. We all have things that we're anxious about, Dr. Tates. But social anxieties, like what a lot of people may be feeling as we reopen here, often have some pretty common beliefs or worries connected with them. I'm wondering, just to start off, what are some of the things that you've noticed with clients and their anxieties around socializing? So, so often people who struggle with social anxiety often see themselves as having to perform for someone else and have really high standards of what they need to do to be worthy enough of a good, you know, connection or showing up at a social event. Um, And so really letting go of like rules or high expectations of yourself can be such a liberating start to see a social event as an opportunity to just spend time with someone rather than pressure to, you know, be, you know, someone who uses this year in the best way possible or took up a new language or something. Obviously our friends have no expectation of you being perfect. I do think that there's this really interesting social comparison that, you know, could possibly come out of this particular chapter because, uh, for example, I have a colleague here at KPCC and he wrote a book. Dude wrote a book during this whole past year and he just shared it on Twitter. And part of me is like, yeah, go, man. That's great. That's really awesome. And the other part of me is like, I didn't write a book. I mean, my gosh. So when people think about maybe even what their conversations might look like after the pandemic, do you think that there's some concern that like one person might say, oh, I did this great thing or this series of great things. And maybe you were so, you know, depressed about being locked away the whole time that your productivity really suffered. Yes, and absolutely. And I, I see people who, you know, are, are obviously feeling so lonely right now. And the last thing that I want people to do is after a year away, feel like they have to, you know, they'll miss the opportunity to connect with someone because they're judging themselves throughout that interaction. Because if you, you know, finally get to meet up with someone in person and you spend that time thinking you didn't use this time well, or you're somehow less than, or they might not want to be your friend anymore because you didn't do enough, you'll miss that opportunity for connection that you so deserve. And I want to keep with connection because before the lockdowns and the quarantine, a lot of people struggled with social anxieties. And I've talked to a number of people, maybe even some of my colleagues that are kind of liking the feeling of not having to go out and be social. But do you think that there are more people in this boat right now? Because a lot of who we think we are, who we thought we were back in the before times, if you will, was kind of based off of what was reflected back to us, right? Yes, and and certainly taking a break from socializing for a year um, would make anyone feel kind of like they're not good at socializing because avoidance is one of the key things that creates anxiety. So why do you think that this particular moment uh, is so hard for some people, even for those who maybe have not experienced social anxiety before? Even out of practice, it's like you haven't, you know, you maybe haven't met up with someone in real time. And on top of that, there's legitimate concerns about you know, COVID, COVID's still a real thing. And some people are telling me that they feel a little uncomfortable and uneasy about how to talk to people about where they are in terms of getting vaccinated and how long it's been or organizing a plan that feels safe. Well, luckily, there is some light preparation that people can practice in order to socialize with minimum anxiety. And I want to look at a few of those, starting with negative thinking in the moment during a social interaction What can you do about those negative thoughts in the moment? So when you're in a social situation and you find yourself judging yourself, holding yourself up to some rigid standard, rather than have the spotlight be on you, really shift the spotlight and pay attention to the person you're with. You know, people are with us because of how we make them feel. Do we make them feel seen? Do we make them feel heard? If you are scrutinizing yourself, you are not going to enjoy the time. You will also not help another person feel like you're with them. And something that I really loved from your article about this, actually, is that on one hand, you have these people who have anxieties because they do hold themselves to the standard or they think that others hold them to the standard. But you also say that charisma actually hinges on you being present. If you really want to maybe be the person that you think that you should be, a large part of that is 
letting go, isn't it? The people are with you because you're present. You know, that's, you know, that's the ultimate thing you could bring really like listening deeply. Validating is a huge thing people love. Um, That's making someone feel really heard. And like you empathize with them. That is the opposite of like going through all your canned stories, which is the opposite of, you know, really showing up honestly. We're talking with Dr. Jenny Tates, clinical psychologist and assistant professor at UCLA, about navigating social anxiety as the county reopens. You mentioned safety earlier, doctor, so I want to get back to safety. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I got invited to a house party, and not a lot of the people were vaccinated and definitely had some major concerns. Did not end up going to that party, but safety is still a major concern despite uh, the drop in cases and deaths. So what tips might you offer us for bringing up these topics gently but productively? Yeah, so Austin, the last thing I want people to do is before socializing, dread and worry because that will just prime you to worry during. And so if instead you kind of get things off your list, uh, you can relax more once you're there. And so I, I think, you know, it's understandable to just normalize. A lot of people have different approaches to how they're re-entering and, you know, be as honest and direct as possible with warmth. You know, I personally am don't feel comfortable eating inside right now. Would it be okay with you if we ate outside? So instead of wondering, wow, I wonder if this restaurant will have availability for us or how this person will feel when I say it to just, you know, clear the air. And that shows that you have self-respect and that you can, you know, count on the person to hear you, which I would imagine, you know, you want certainly to have those things in any sort of friendship or relationship. You know, doctor, one of the best things that I've learned in my own personal journey is that the things that you focus on tend to expand. And in your New York Times article, you talk about the spotlight and how your mind works like the spotlight, especially on the things that you're anxious about. So how can you shift the spotlight in these interactions to cope with anxiety? I thought this was really interesting. You can shift the spotlight by really turning attention, not on you, but on another person, really like looking at them, listening to them. So often when people are speaking, unfortunately, um, when someone else is talking, someone might not be really deeply listening, but thinking about what they're going to say next or what story they're going to offer up. But instead to really like drop in to what someone else is sharing allows you to like have this break of pressure and also make someone else feel really, you know, cared for. So for those who feel overwhelmed by the idea of jumping into socializing again, there may be some baby steps that they can take to get into it. How can people ease their way back in, doctor? You can make a list of what seems least stressful to most stressful. So maybe meeting up with one person that you're close to one-on-one would be least stressful. And then a group activity could be more stressful and try to approach one thing on your list at a time with kindness, without judging yourself and know that it's okay to feel anxious. The goal is not to not feel anxious. The goal is to live an approach lifestyle where you do the things that you once enjoyed that matter to you rather than avoid and let anxiety run your life. And I got to ask you one more question. Shout out for my fellow introverts out there. But if you are introverted during this pandemic and you found that you actually want to stay at home a little bit more in the future, is that okay? I love that question. And that is absolutely okay. I mean, I, (laughs) I want people to really take what they learned about themselves and feel like they can live a more authentic, genuine life. Um, if you're feeling like you actually prefer to have more time alone, honor that, but also think about what your values are. Maybe self-care is one core value, but also giving to others might be another value. And so maybe you can go to that friend's birthday dinner um, that feels safe, but also be okay leaving early or you know not drinking if you've taken up sobriety during this time. That's Dr. Jenny Tate's clinical psychologist and assistant professor at UCLA, giving us some advice on how to navigate our social anxieties as the county reopens. You can find her article called How to Deal with Quarantine-Induced Social Anxiety on the New York Times website. And doctor, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. So yeah, socializing is becoming a thing again. And it seems like life has gone from zero to 60 in a flash. So big question. How you feeling? How you feeling about all of this? Stoked to be mixing it up with people again, or are you maybe feeling a little anxious? Whatever you are feeling, we want to know. 
Share your thoughts or leave us a voicemail at 626-583-5281. Again, that's 626-583-5281. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget, leave your name and tell us where you're from. We may have turned a corner in our fight against COVID-19 here in Southern California, but a lot of the pandemic's damage to the business scene is permanent. Case in point, the Arclight and Pacific Theaters, who announced last month they will not reopen their doors. If you are a movie theater fan like our guy A. Martinez, yeah, that's a real blow. But there is some good news. As one popular local theater says, they're coming back. We'll tell you who that is in 60 seconds. Stay with me. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness and just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Gotta change around here. Gotta change around here. Can't go on this way. Things gotta change around here. Say it loud. You are back to the soulful sounds of Take Two here on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Austin Cross. After permanent closures of Arclight and Pacific Theaters were announced last month, there's finally some good news for moviegoers. The Alamo Draft House is reopening. The Texas-based boutique chain barely survived the pandemic, filing for bankruptcy in March. But its new owners plan to reopen 15 theaters across the country in the coming weeks. And this includes here in downtown L.A. Here with more on the Alamo Draft House's planned reopening and the future of other movie theaters in L.A., we have KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter, John Horn. Hey, John. Hey, Austin. How's it going? Oh, it's going great when you're here, John. Oh, thanks. When exactly, John, can people expect to return to the Alamo Draft House? Well, I guess it depends on where you live. Alamo has screens across the country. It reopened a theater in Missouri last week. A location in Brooklyn is going to come online this coming weekend, and its theaters in downtown. Town LA are set to reopen on May 28th, which is also when some of its Texas theaters will start to unlock their doors. You know, I got to say, John, I've never actually been to an Alamo Draft House, but I hear Alamo and I think Texas and I hear Draft House and I think beers. So I'm really curious, what can people expect from this experience and will they still be able to order, say, food or drinks to their seats? Well, they say there is a scaled down menu, but I'm going to just read something from the menu in Springfield, Missouri, where they are Mm -hmm. open and tell me if this sounds really good. I'm ready. Uh, loaded fries, a pile of fries topped with our hatch green chili, green chili queso, Tillamook cheddar, smoked bacon, cilantro, green onions, and sriracha sour cream, and have that with a Royale with cheese. Ooh. You probably know the movie reference there. Uh, a Tillamook cheddar, smoked bacon, caramelized onion, tomato, lettuce, and mayo on a toasted seeded bun. All of that for twenty-five dollars and fifty cents. Wow, John, you might not get uh, you might not get COVID, but you might need some antacids <laughs> yeah. to go with all that. You mess. go visit your cardiologist right after. <laughs> For real. So, can people expect that from the one here in downtown LA, or do we not know yet? We don't know yet, but I think what the chain is trying to do is create you know safety protocols, kind of like Delta Airlines. They're blocking off adjacent seats when you buy a ticket, and also like an airline, you're going to try to exit by row to maintain social distancing. You know, they're going to Alamo like a lot, a lot of chains are going to limit capacity. Some are some chains are obligated to Alamo says, you know, they're going to do what's best, even if a local or federal law says you can have more people in. They're going to say, we'll do what's we're comfortable with. 
Well, so tell us more about the new owners of this theater and how it was rescued from the brink of closure. Well, the new owners are, in fact, the old owners. Uh, old owners, they're Fortress Investment Group and Altamont Capital. And Altamont had been an investor, investor in Alamo since 2018. Mm. And as they really kind of went into a free fall like other movie theater chains last year, they brought in Fortress, which manages uh, long-term debt, buys distressed debt, and they bought some of the debt up. So they were in the prime position to buy it back. And basically, Basically, I mean, they were they were shut down for a couple of weeks while I went through this reorganization. So very quick turnaround. Do you get the sense, John, that when movie theaters do start to reopen, though, they really have to compete with places like, you know, my couch? Oh, I think that's a fundamental problem going forward. I mean, I think the the change in how we watch content has changed irreversibly during the pandemic. And certain movies are still going to do, you know, very well and people are going to want to go see them. I know your favorite movie right now, Godzilla versus Kong. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's good in theaters stuff. and it's going to pass $100 million in domestic ticket sales. That's a pretty good turnout. For a movie, obviously not in a normal time of year, but post-pandemic, those are pretty good numbers. We're talking right now with KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter John Horn. And John, not all theater chains have had the same good fortune as the Alamo Draft House, And many avid movie buffs were heartbroken at the announced closure of the Arclight and Pacific theaters like A. Martinez. Uh, and that, of course, included the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. But there have been some rumblings from some notable folks about saving these theaters. What's the latest on that? Well, it's tricky because, you know, Arclight and Pacific said they're closed for good. In fact, the Santa Monica Place Mall, where there's an Arclight theater, is trying to evict Arclight, even though they're closed, because they owe more than two, um, almost $2 million in back rent. The problem with a lot of those Arclight and Pacific theaters is they're in malls, and Big hit movies attract big crowds to the malls, and generally they stick around and they shop, they eat, they drink. And so one of the people who is really trying to figure out if there's a solution is Rick Caruso. He has The Grove and The Americana, and he thinks there's a way <clears throat> to bring back some of these theaters, but it's unclear if any of them would be sold piecemeal and whether any new owner would be on the hook for the chain's back rent at other locations. You know, I really feel that, John, as a child from the 90s growing up in L.A., we used to go to Westside Pavilion. You go to the theater there. Yep. There used to be a theater there, and you yep. go down to C's. You get you some C's. It was a good time, John. It was a great time. And it was the 90s, so everything was great. But uh, let me ask you this. How big of an issue for other developers is the closing of Arclight and Pacific Theaters, if they do indeed close? Uh, it's a big deal. I mean, and and certainly if you look at, like, the Cinerama Dome, let's say, for ex let's say it doesn't get bought. Is, is it a historical landmark? Does it get preserved? You know, Netflix bought the Cinematheque down the street. Does it buy it? I don't know. But those are anchor tenants uh, in real estate terms. And even though movie theater attendance has been trending down, if you're going to the Grove to see a movie, you're not just going to see a movie. You're going to make a night of it. And if you don't have that theater open in a shopping location like that or inside some other mall, it's really going to reduce traffic. And it's going to be, and what do you put in the space? I mean, these are, it's a huge footprint, uh, real estate-wise, in terms of square footage. So what goes in there instead? It's not like you can put in a sporting goods store where there's seats <laughs> and a screen. I don't know what else you can do in that. you got to tear it down. That's KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter, John Horn. John, thank you so much for making All, the time, man. Always a pleasure, Austin. Thanks. This is your daily Take Two dance party, and that's it for Take Two today. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Thank you for spending your time with me this afternoon. It's always a good time. If you missed any of today's show, especially my conversation with UCLA psychologist Jenny Tate, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Such a great chat. And if you like today's show or if you just want to say hello, you can find me. I'm on Twitter at Austin Cross. A. Martinez will be back with you tomorrow. See you, everybody.